So the battle belongs to God. That's what we're going to look at um, tonight. And we're going to look at three stories. Um, A trumpet, some stones, and a wooden cross, um, all telling the same story that the battle belongs to God. And I don't know about you, how you've walked into this building tonight, hobbled in or limped in, whatever you've done tonight, Um, but the fact that actually we're here tonight to be reminded that God's in charge. He is the one that's above all things. And I know that there might be some of you in this building tonight that might be thinking, I'm still asking the question, where God are you in this? And as Andy led us in prayer meeting this morning, and, and Chrissy alluded to um, just as we were beginning the service this evening, is that sometimes we have those questions. And I think it's a healthy question to ask, God, where are you in this? And don't be afraid in, in your walk with God when you pray to, to ask, God, where are you in this? Because sometimes we can be looking down or, or we don't have the perspective that actually God is above all things. And, uh, and I think we can leave that preach for somebody else another day to talk about where is God in certain situations, because... We haven't got time this evening. Right. So these three stories, and I want to just let it be a response to, to us. As we come back into a time of worship, I just want to prepare you that sometimes we come into that kind of response song, and we're going to get into have a, uh, like a, a ministry team, an enabling team. Actually, I want us tonight to come back with like a, a battle cry. Um, and we've got that song lined up, haven't we, Lauren? Yeah, that's cool. And, uh, and I wrecked Lauren's kind of song choice on Friday, and I said, can we sing this song? And she's like, yeah, okay, I can swap things around. And it wasn't, yeah, okay, it was like, what are you doing to me kind of thing. Um, but, but actually, that's what we're going to do tonight, because it's really, really important that we come back with this sense of, God, you are in charge, that actually the battle belongs to you, and that actually, wherever you are in your life, that you might be carrying this stuff, actually, maybe tonight is just to hand it over to God and just say, do you know what, I want to choose to surrender, because I know you're the one that is in control. So these three stories, we're going to look at the trumpet, okay? And we're going to be looking at the story of Gideon, briefly, just giving you kind of like an overview. Um, And uh, as we go through, you can find Gideon in the Old Testament, the book of Judges, uh, particularly the chapter 6 and and chapter 7. And if you don't really know much about the book of Judges, then there is this common theme that you will go through that, that actually almost every chapter starts with this, then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And there's this kind of repetition that goes on. And in one sense, when you start reading Judges, you go, this is quite depressing. But actually, you also see the mercy and the love of God that as soon as the people of God turn back to him, his grace and mercy is above their sin. It covers their mess. And so this, this pattern that goes on throughout and they would, and what would happen is that they wouldn't just say, oh, we're just going to go and do our own thing. No, they would go and follow and idolize other gods, false gods. And they would fall into this trap. And again, we haven't got time to look at these tonight, but some of the things they would have done would have been horrific, things that would have been like, what on earth are you doing? But that's what they did. And, and actually then what would happen is God would allow trouble to come upon them because what they've done is they've just gone and pursued other things and idolized other gods. But what would happen is that the Israelites would come to a place, so Israelites is God's people, and recognize that actually, no, we're we're doing wrong, and they would cry out to God, and as I said, through his mercy and love for his people, he would rise up a judge, and that judge would then rule over the people for a period of time. And so what would happen in this one, they would say that there would then be peace for a while, sometimes it was decades, and then before we know it, the Israelites would turn their back on God and begin to worship the idols. And that's what you kind of get the theme throughout each chapter of the book of Judges. 
And at this time, the story of Gideon is that the, the people of God were in hiding. Okay, The enemy, which are known as the Midianites, for seven years oppressed them. They would destroy any produce of the land that God's people would try to grow and kill the farm animals. And in verse 6, it says that they were greatly impoverished. Okay, So God's people were greatly impoverished. And that's when God's people finally turned to him and cried out to him. And God hears their cries. And because, as I say, his grace and mercy, he had a plan for them. And he would turn to someone that none of us would go, actually, that would be the person we'd go for. They're known, this guy Gideon, as the weakest of the weak. He's in the kind of the, the weakest clan. He's, he's kind of like, he's got this reputation of being a nobody, the least of the least. But God chooses him. And do you know what? In life, God chooses the weak. He uses the weak. I think in our world today, we tend to look for the kind of the outward appearance, the person that seems to have it all together when actually God looks at the heart. And we're going to look at a little bit about that um, later on. We're going to skip through some bits and pieces, but just to give you an overview, Gideon needed convincing. You talk about the fleece he puts out and all that kind of stuff that goes on. And really, Gideon has this conversation with God. And in the end, Gideon is convinced. But here's a key verse in Judges 6, verse 34. The Spirit of God came upon Gideon. And that changes everything. And if you know Jesus in this place today, then maybe that's your story as well. My story is that actually, yeah, I kind of in theory knew about God, but when I gave my life to Christ and then I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, it, it transforms you. It changes your thinking. He, he changes your heart. And now I know that I don't have to live my life on my own. I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so what happens is that Gideon then gathers an army because they're going to fight against these Midianites. But it's not a very conventional battle tactic that's going to be played here. So he gathered an army and started with 32,000 men. God felt it was too many because he still felt that they would rely that if they won the battle, hey, we won it. And God wanted to show them that actually the battle belongs to me. So he instructs Gideon to get rid of anyone or allow them to go back home for those that are fearful and afraid to return home. I don't know how Gideon felt at this moment, but 22,000 said, that's me, I'm off. He's left with 10,000. But God says, that's still too many. And so God asks him to do, go down to the, uh, the, the, the riverside, and it's all about lapping up the water. And effectively what happened is Gideon is left then with 300 men. And by the way, they don't really have any swords. So 300 men face what seems an impossible situation, vastly outnumbered and ill-equipped. And what do these 300 men have as weapons? Trumpets and torchlights. Not very conventional. Whenever have you heard of a battle taking place where the weapons are musical instruments? As you head into battle with trumpets, Oh no, the opposition have got trombones. They're going to reach out. They've got a longer reach. Oh no, they've got an army of children that have just started to learn to play the violin. All that kind of stuff going on. It just doesn't make sense. Why would you go onto the battle line with trumpets? But that's how God works. He works in mysterious ways. He works in ways that, that go beyond any of our understanding, way beyond our understanding. And what were they facing? They were facing 
this army of the Midianites that were described as vast. They were in camp. They were ready to attack the Israelites. And it described that they had so many camels, which in reference for us today doesn't really make much sense, but they were like numbered like locusts. And have you ever seen a swarm of locusts on like a documentary? David Attenborough doing the old narrating of it. You can't really see what's going on around because it's just locusts. And when the Bible describes that, it just shows that actually they were vastly outnumbered. It was this impossible task, but the battle belongs to God. And the story continues where Gideon provides instructions to the 300 and he splits them into, into teams of three. And just on the screen, uh, please, Mel, Judges 7 verse 20 says this, Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitches. They held the torches in their left hand and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Shout that out with me, the sword of the Lord and Gideon. Ready? The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. We're not an assembly. Let's do it again. Let's just shout it out. The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. I love young people. Even though I can't see them at the back, they're next to the cakes. All right? But the sword of the Lord. What have they got? They've got in their left hands, they've got the torches. In their right, they've got the trumpets. No sword. What happens? It's in the middle of the night and the Midianites wake up and they've already had a dream that something's going on. In their total confusion, the Midianites fight one another and they destroy themselves in the total confusion. God's plans go way beyond our understanding. And when you kind of analyze the story, it doesn't make sense from an earthly point of view. But when we talk about being in relationship with God, he can do all things. And it makes absolutely no sense you would go into a battle with a trumpet and a torchlight. But what are we learning about these kind of stories when we apply it into our own lives? Gideon, even though he did need convincing, he had faith. And he trusted God. Can you imagine when those 22,000 suddenly left, how you might have felt? Might just start to question God. All those 10,000 then disappear. Oh my goodness, no. No, he, he followed what God called him to do. And I think for us, sometimes God may be calling you to do some things which may sound unusual or, or actually I don't know how that's going to pan out. But I think tonight God might be saying to you is, you need to just be in a place of trusting him and just surrendering to him and allow him to speak into your life. The battle belongs to God. So that's the kind of the trumpet story. And if you think, oh, actually, I'd like to read more of that story, go to the book of Judges and read more of that. There's so much more in that. But I just want to really press on very quickly onto the stones. So if we could just go, I think, onto the next image, and we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel. Um, it's kind of like one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament because we're talking about a teenager, okay? And I love young people. I love the passion they have. I love the questions they ask. I love the way that they can just be silly, all right? And, and I just love the fact that they are 
Incredible. And we love our young people, don't we? So the intro into the story of David, I've touched on this in, in the past here as well, but so I don't want to kind of dwell too much on it, but I think this is a story that linked in like with Gideon is actually like the story with David that, that actually God chooses to use people that, that are the unseen. And so the story goes that Samuel, who's a prophet, comes to Jesse's house to anoint the new king of Israel. And what happens is that Samuel will say to Jesse, um, that actually I want you to line up or get your sons together and um, one of them is now going to be the new king of Israel. And so what happens is that these sons line up and Eliab, who's the eldest son, Samuel looks at him and says, that's the one. He is the new king of Israel. But the Lord says to Samuel, do not look at the appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for, God looks at the out, uh, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Samuel made a kind of like a, a quick decision that going, he clearly must be the perfect package. He is the next king, and on top of that, he's the eldest son, and normally that would mean that he's normally the first in line, like inheritance and so on. But God says, no, I look at the heart. I don't look at the outward appearance. And it might be someone in you, it might be one of you like in this room tonight that you think, I don't feel like I'm somebody. I feel like nobody. What, what can I offer to the life of this church? Do you know what? God doesn't look at you trying to impress him or you trying to impress anybody else. He looks at the heart. And he calls you to be a person that just worships and enjoys being in relationship with him. We surrender to him. And when we do that, God can do amazing things through you. So Eliab is kind of dismissed, and the other sons are, are kind of like then lined up, and Samuel says, no, it's not you, not you, not you, and so on and so on. And then he says, have you got any backup sons stored somewhere? And Jesse has one more. He has David, who's the youngest, and he's looking after the sheep. So insignificant that Jesse didn't even think about bringing his youngest son to the party. He was entrusted to look after the sheep, but actually there's no chance he was going to be the next king of Israel. As soon as he comes in, the scripture just describes it. It's like, yeah, this is the one. And he's anointed and the spirit of God comes upon him. But because of King Saul and all the story of that, it had to be kept quite hush-hush that he was going to be the next king. So he honored him, and you can read that through 1 Samuel. And so then we get to this David and Goliath story, which I think most of you are very, very familiar with. But David and Goliath, David wasn't even meant to be there, but his dad said, can you take some lunch uh, for my sons who are on the front line? And he turns up, and for about 40 days, the Israelite army are ridiculed um, by the enemy giant, Goliath. And Goliath was the Philistines' own hero, their giant, and he ridiculed them for 40 days and 40 nights, calling them to send someone out to fight him. He really wanted to have a fight. David turns up on the scene. He hears Goliath ridiculing people. He offers his services. He's brought to the current king of Israel, Saul. Saul agrees, 
but David is too small to fit into the armor. So David says, it's okay, I'll go as I am. David heads to meet Goliath, who's built like a tank and wears armor from head to toe. Goliath is insulted. I mean, could you imagine how he felt that he's been ridiculing them, thinking, I've really got them in a very scary place. They're really going to try a new tactic, and their tactic is to send down a teenager who's just in normal civilian clothes and no sword in his hand. Nothing apart from a slingshot. That is all he has. He threatens David. And in 1 Samuel 17, verse 47, which I think is on the screen, which it is, it says this, All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. I was a bit gentle like that. I'm going to read it out again. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. And at that, Goliath accepts the challenge and runs towards him. And we know that he picks up five smooth stones and he uses just one. And he hits part of the body that isn't covered in armor. And the giant falls. What does that do to other people? Well, it happened that the Israelite army that had been terrified for 40 days and 40 nights see that the giant has been slayed. And what happens is that the Philistines start to run away and retreat. And the Israelite army, God's people, races and charges after the enemy. The battle, folks, belongs to the Lord. And he uses people that will step out and trust him and surrender their lives to him. And we are often surprised by how God works. As I say before, he works in mysterious ways. He uses the least of the least in a family lineup. He takes his teenager to go and fight this, this giant that everybody else was fearful of. But the crucial thing is that David knew the battle wasn't his. It belonged to God. And then the final story I want to look at tonight is a story, and it's quite obvious, the cross, okay? Because at the center of our lives is recognizing what Jesus has done for us. You know, the cross was meant to be a symbol of shame and condemnation, yet it's come to symbolize for us victory and celebration. The cross was reserved for the worst of the worst, for the murderers, and anyone that rebelled against Rocky, uh, Roman occupied rule, put my teeth back in, the Romans considered it the worst form of punishment. I'm not going to go into any graphic detail, but simply this, the condemned were nailed hands and feet to the wooden cross, left there to hang and shamed as a public spectacle sometimes hanging there for days. That's what the cross was designed for. It was brutal. It was horrific. And yet, this guy like Barabbas, who deserved to die and condemned under that current law, was replaced by Jesus, who was falsely accused. 
And so why would a, such a barbaric and horrific form of punishment be something that we sing about when we worship together or when we preach or you hear someone teaching on it? It's a story of how Jesus has redeemed us. And from now, the eternity, death has no power over us anymore. We now belong to Jesus. We come into a place of knowing that we have been set free. And that cross symbolizes hope and forgiveness and the schemes of the enemy who thought that Jesus dying on the cross meant he had lost. Instead, Jesus has won. In John 19, verse 30, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. And if you're new to the Bible or you just want to know more about the kind of the life of Jesus and the death and the resurrection, then you can read that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John in the New Testament. But it is finished. It means it has been accomplished. It has been done. Jesus has died once and for all. He doesn't need to do it again. So his great plan for us is that actually he has dealt with all our sins. And I, what I find still staggering, I still can't get my head around it. It's not the sins that have gone before me, it's sins that are gonna, that have ha- gonna happen in the future. God's grace abounds. And we come into this incredible loving relationship with him. But the story, you know, doesn't stop there. We know that the resurrection story, that three days later, Jesus raises from the dead, overcoming that stronghold of sin and death over our lives. We are forgiven. We are forgiven. Isn't that liberating? Isn't that amazing to know that actually that Jesus died for us, that he was our substitute, In Philippians 2, verse 5 to 11 on the screen, please, Mel. It says this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. And then the next verse is on the screen. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, when People celebrated thinking that Jesus was going to die on that cross. They thought that he was done and dusted. And over 2,000 years later, we're still talking about Jesus. We're still singing about Jesus. We're still celebrating the fact that he had victory over the cross. Because not only did he die, but he raised from the dead three days later. And he ascended to heaven. And he fulfilled his promise by sending the Holy Spirit, the helper, the counselor, to come and live and reign in our lives. Church, we've got so much to be thankful for. 
We've got so much to celebrate. And know whatever battles are going on, the battle belongs to God. And he is the victor. He is the one that has the reign over everything. So remember, Gideon went into battle with trumpets and a torchlight. David went one-on-one with a huge giant and took only a sling and some stones. And Jesus was nailed to the cross. He was despised and became the least so that we can be saved. Maybe we should just have the band just to come back up. And maybe if you're able to, why don't we just um, stand? And maybe just close your eyes for a moment, because I just want to help apply this as we come back together. So whatever is going on in your life, hold firm onto the knowledge that the battle belongs to God. Maybe this evening you've been trying to lead the battle on your own. Maybe you offer God, it's okay, I've got this, when actually you know it's time to surrender and hand over the reins to God. I've asked Lauren that we want us to sing the song, Battle Belongs, and I just want to read out some of the lyrics. Because I don't want to go into this time where we just go softly, softly. I want us to go in with a sense of like, Lord, we, we mean this. We want to surrender and give this all over to you. It says, some of the lyrics said, when all I see is the battle, you see my victory. When all I see is the mountain, you see a mountain moved. And as I walk through the shadow, your love surrounds me. There's nothing to fear now, for I am safe with you. So when I fight, I'll fight on my knees with my hands lifted high. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. And every fear I lay at your feet, I sing through the night. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. I want to encourage you. Maybe you've not really done this before because actually it can be a bit of a scary thing to do. But I want to say as we just come into this song and we just sing, is to just sing with a a passion and a desire, maybe lifting your hands up in praise, getting into a place of just saying, do you know what, whatever you might be carrying, whatever you might be thinking about, whatever doubts and fears you might have, or even questioning where your walk with God looks like, is actually, no, no, I want to come tonight and declare that actually the battle belongs to you. And the way I want to fight may sound like a really odd way in this world, like Gideon with the trumpets, like David with the stones. Like Jesus dying on a cross for us. It's actually coming and just saying, my fight tonight is just to raise my hands in praise. That's what I want to do. And maybe you've been trying to fight God and not allow yourself to surrender to him. You may think, well, actually, I I don't know how to do all this kind of stuff. I've been saying to God, I've got this. Well, maybe this evening you need to surrender to him. Maybe this evening for the first time you need to say, Jesus, I don't fully get it yet, but I want to accept you in my life tonight. And I want to say that he is the one that has the power over your mess. He's the one that can set you free and bring you into a brand new life, a new creation.